0: In the hit musical Hamilton, President George Washington summons Alexander Hamilton into his office for a private conversation. Hamilton has already served as Washington's right-hand man in the Revolutionary Army. He has served as Secretary of Treasury during uh, Washington's first two terms and now the two men have developed a rather deep and complicated friendship and Washington shocks Hamilton when he announces that he does not intend to run for a third term. What, he says? The people of the country, they need you. You must serve. You have to run. And Washington refuses, saying, as the scripture says, I want to sit under my own vine and my own fig tree, a moment alone in the shade. Washington has already endured harrowing moments on the battlefield, And the treacherous first steps of building a nation and now he simply wants to rest let me sit under the shade tree in peace says washington he's quoting the prophet micah but it is eerily similar to the image that the prophet jonah says in the story that we just heard jonah too has been on a harrowing mission and he now wishes to retreat and rest under the shade tree. The text says that the Lord God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade to his head and to save him from his discomfort so that Jonah was very happy about the bush. But the next day, the bush withers, and Jonah's moment in the shade is gone, and his arrogant, angry complaining towards God resumes. Jonah is angry with God, Because God forgave the Ninevites. And everyone knows they didn't deserve it. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. And Assyria will attack Israel and destroy God's people. The Ninevites, they worship a different God. They are more than foreigners. They are enemy invaders. And they are just plain wrong. Everyone in the scripture agrees with that. You know someone like those Ninevites? They are our international enemies across the ocean with the finger sitting right there near the trigger. They are our close friends, those whom we love, but whom we dramatically disagree with on politics. Or sometimes the Ninevites are those whom we just think, well, they haven't quite done enough, worked hard enough, you know, he could have done better if he had just applied himself and worked harder and she could have had a better life if she had you know like joined some community groups become involved in the church we are like jonah we can easily fall into self-aggrandizement jonah argues with god jonah says I didn't want to go to Nineveh, I did not want to tell anyone that you are gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, because I wanted the Ninevites to suffer. And now, God, you forgive them, and it just isn't right. Well, there's another image from the book of Jonah. It is one that we think of often when we hear the word Jonah, because it is is the one that we find in the pages of children's literature the moment when Jonah is swallowed by the big fish and then a little bit later the fish spits Jonah out on dry land. But sometimes we forget what did Jonah do to get in the belly of the whale and what did he do in order to get spit out. So let's review the beginning of the book where God calls Jonah to preach to Nineveh. Picture this. If you were called today and told, you need to get to Baghdad as soon as possible. And the first thing you did was get on a boat and start sailing to South America. That's what Jonah does. He flees in the opposite direction that God sends him. And once he's on the ship, a storm comes up. And the ancient rabbis wrote a funny story about what they imagined happening once Jonah was on that ship. The text tells us that the ship was just about to break into two because of the fierce winds of the storm. When Jonah comes up on the deck and says, hey, it's all my fault, God told me to do something, I refused, and now here we have the storm. And the rabbis remind us that in the text it says that the first thing the sailors decided to do was to go back to dry land to get Jonah off the boat, but that doesn't work, and so they decide that they will dip Jonah's toe into the water and see what happens. And when they do, the storm ceases. And so they pull him back out, and the storm rages again. And so they dip Jonah into the water all the way up to his waist, and then all the way up to his shoulders, and then all the way up to his nose. And it is utterly calm, And they pull him back out, and the storm rages, and so they throw him overboard, and he lands in the bottom of the ocean and is swallowed by the big fish, and there he begins a different kind of journey. He is there in the belly of the fish for three days. And I love that we're told it was three days because three days is what we are told Jesus spent in the tomb. And there in that dark place, Jonah remembers he remembers that god had sent him and he begins to pray and he begins to promise god that he will go where god sends him there in the belly of the fish jonah begins to blame himself unlike that other image of jonah underneath the plant feeling superior to everyone else this image of jonah in the belly of the whale is an image of jonah In self-loathing I can't do anything right I'm never good enough I have failed God I have failed everyone maybe you've had a day like that there are days when I have felt like the worst parent in the whole world there are days when I have felt inadequate to serve as a pastor there are days when I was a lousy friend and there are moments more than one when I said something to my husband that I wish I could just retrieve and put back in my mouth I love the image of Jonah inside the fish tossing about in self-loathing and I also love the image of Jonah sitting under the shade tree feeling like he's better than everyone else and sometimes it's possible that we feel both of those things at the same moment I'm better than you I'm terrible, and I'm not good enough. Eugene Peterson wrote a book about Jonah called Under the Unpredictable Plant. In the book, he focuses on how often pastors lose the real purpose of their ministry and their calling. But one of the little images in the book is the image of the pulpit, and he describes how there are these pulpits in Eastern Europe that were fashionable for a time, that the pulpit is actually built into the shape of an upright whale or fish. Now you've been to cathedrals where the pulpit is kind of hovering up in the air and you have to get to the pulpit by a little spiral staircase. Well, it's kind of like that, only you enter the pulpit at the tail fin of the fish and then you climb a ladder through the belly of the whale and you come out of the mouth of the fish to begin to preach. And Peter says to I've always wanted a pulpit like that. Because it reminds him that most of us go through some kind of inner turmoil before we find the truth to speak. It is not just an image for pastors or preachers. It is an experience that most of us have had Of being inside the belly of a whale maybe it was for three days maybe it was for three months maybe it was for three years but most of us have had a period where we wrestled with self-doubt and we had to struggle to come to grips with what it is that we were supposed to be doing next what was God calling us or claiming upon us And many of us have had that moment when we felt like we had just been spit out on a small strip of dry land to begin again. All of us have been Jonah, full of certainty that we are right and others are wrong. And all of us have been Jonah, full of doubt and turmoil and longing for do-overs. Jonah doesn't want God to forgive the Ninevites And Jonah can't seem to receive God's forgiveness and to let God change him. Eugene Peterson recalls a time when he was visiting the elderly members of his congregation. And he found that when he went to the nursing homes, it was often more useful for him to take along his nine-year-old daughter, Karen, than it was to take along a Bible. Because the elderly folks in the care center loved stroking Karen's hair and patting her hand. And one day, Eugene Peterson and his daughter Karen went to visit Mrs. Herr, a woman who was in the latter stages of advanced dementia. While they were in her room, Mrs. Herr went right over to the little girl Karen and began to tell her stories about her own childhood. And when she finished this wonderful story, she repeated the story. And then she repeated it again, and she just kept looping on the same story for about 20 minutes, and Peterson became nervous that his daughter would feel uncomfortable and would not know how to handle the situation. And so he interrupted Mrs. Herr. He anointed her with oil. He said a prayer, and they bolted out of the care center, and when he got in the car, he said to Karen, Oh, Karen, you handled that so beautifully. I want to commend you for the way that you listened. You see, Mrs. Herr, her brain doesn't work like ours works. And Karen said, oh, Daddy, I knew Mrs. Her wasn't trying to tell us anything. She was trying to tell us who she is. You see, this little girl knew what Jonah seemed to have forgotten. That God longs to come alongside every single one of us and connect with us and love us and shape us into God's own friends. It isn't about doing the job. It's about being together. Or as Peterson said, our job is not communication, it's communion. Well, the story of Jonah ends with a question. God asks Jonah, and should I not be concerned about Nineveh? It's not an intellectual question. Jonah knows that God is concerned about Nineveh, God sent Jonah there to proclaim love and grace and offer forgiveness and a path towards new life. But Jonah can't do it. Jonah can't soften his heart. He sits there under the shade tree at the end of the story, pouting. Jonah's real problem with forgiveness is this. He's afraid that if he forgives, that he has somehow condoned bad behavior. And then the Ninevites and jonah himself will be let off the hook but god has a different opinion of forgiveness a different definition god's goal is not just to let people off the hook god's goal is to change them to transform them to set them on a new path god chases jonah all the way into the belly of the fish at the bottom of the sea to try to capture his attention and turn his life around. God continues to hold out hope for the people of Nineveh that they too could turn and become holy and gracious and loving. One of the great joys of serving in the same congregation for 30 years has been the privilege of witnessing those sacred moments when God changes real human lives, our minds, our hearts, our relationships. God gets the last word in the book of Jonah. He says to Jonah, who's sitting there under that tree, the wilted tree, fuming, stinking, mad, he says, Should I not be concerned about Nineveh? Eric Adler, a member of our congregation, told me about a podcast that I should listen to called More Perfect Pendulum Two. The podcast reminds us of something that we all learned in high school but have perhaps forgotten. It is the story of Dred Scott, was a slave in the early 1800s here in the middle of the country. At that time of his life about half of our states were slave states and about half were free states. Dred Scott was owned by a man who lived in the South but who often traveled and he went with his owner into free territory and he stayed there for months at a time living as a free man but when his owner died and he was back in the southern states it became clear that his family was about to be broken up and sold off, and he was going to be separated from his daughters. And so he seized on what was legally an option because he had lived as a free man and was technically free, and so he sued for his freedom. And here in Missouri, he won. But the case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and in 1857, Dred Scott was denied his freedom by the United States Supreme Court. Chief Justice Tawney wrote, and I quote, a black man has no rights, which the white man is bound to respect. 159 years later, in a hotel ballroom in the Hilton in St. Louis, in the year 2016, the great-great-grandchildren of Dred Scott and the great-great-grandchildren of Ch- Chief Justice Tawney and the great-great-grandchildren of the man who had owned Dred-, Dred Scott gathered together for two days. It looked like an ordinary family reunion with talking and laughing and sharing drinks in the hotel bar and visiting with one another and catching up on stories, but it was an, indeed a reconciliation conference. And during the formal program, the great-great-grandson of the Chief Justice came to the microphone, and he said, I've talked this over with my daughter, and I want to say to the descendants of Dred Scott, I apologize. On behalf of my family, we are deeply sorry. Afterwards, the great-great-granddaughter of Dred Scott was asked, what did you think of that? And she said, it was so moving, I was in tears. And her brother said, I don't need an apology. I was uncomfortable. Just them showing up in the room, it was enough. The only thing he has in common with his great-great-grandfather is DNA. Just being here together, that shows that the change has happened. Hearts soften. History shifts, transformation unfolds, no condoning, only people turning and walking in new ways. How shall we answer God's question, the one God asks of us at the end of the book of Jonah? Shall I not be concerned?